All right, let's get into the Word. We are continuing our series, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, and it has been a while. We've been going through this for a few months now, and for the last five weeks, we have been walking through this kind of middle point on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember we took several weeks just to walk through the introduction to his sermon, and then we've been taking the last several weeks to go through this middle ground where he makes these six points. And today we're going to talk about the the last of these six points, and then we'll move on to the next phase in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's going to keep being good, so don't worry about that. Uh, but, But today we're going to wrap up this portion of the sermon. You'll remember for the last five weeks, and then today we'll finish it, Jesus has had these six points that all begin with something like, you've heard that it was said, and then he explains this teaching that the people in his day were listening to and living by, and then he goes, but I tell you, and then he corrects that teaching, because unfortunately that teaching wasn't really helpful. And so he goes after these six ideas, these six kinds of teaching for how people should live in the world, and he says, I want to show you how you should live in the kingdom of God in the world. And so he teaches us these incredibly important points, and today, let me read for you the text, and then we're going to walk through what Jesus says as he wraps up this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And when we finish this sermon, we will have studied all the way through the entire uh, chapter of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what, re- what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? If you're unfamiliar, Gentiles is the term that was used for all non-Jewish people, and they were considered people outside of the covenant of God. And tax collectors were, uh, well, maybe we still view them the same way as they did then. I think you understood that one. Verse 47, he says, and if you greet only uh, your brothers and sisters again, he says, don't even the Gentiles do all of that. In verse 48, he concludes his thought. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in saying that, he actually, you can tell, puts a bookend here on this section of his sermon because this is how he he began this section of his sermon by challenging us to be like our Father in heaven, to be perfect like he is perfect. And I understand in those verses there is a lot going on. So we're going to see if, if we can walk through this. But I just want to tell you before we dig into this text, if you can manage to apply this to your life, and I'm going to just give you a warning, it's not going to be easy. But if you can manage to apply this to your life, this is, going to, this is the one. It'll save you so much time and energy. I mean, it'll just save you so much stress as Jesus says, love your enemies. And I know there's a part of us that just wants to go, what? But if you can figure out what Jesus meant here and actually apply it to your lives, oh, this this is going to change your life. This is going to set you free. Here's the reality. We live in a world where hating our enemies has become a common language. In fact, we've developed an entire culture around it. We call it cancel culture, right? We determine somebody has said or done something that that they no longer deserve to be in the good graces of society, and so we hashtag cancel them. This this is part of our language. Hate hate comes in all shapes and sizes in 2021, right? It's, 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 It's really versatile, right? We, we see hate for police officers, and our response to that is that we pray for police officers. That's a hard job. Let's not waste any time there. No one in any job is a perfect human being, and that's a hard job. We pray for them. We pray for wisdom and protection. Uh, Asian hate is a new conversation that's being had, but not a new problem in this country, Right? There's been hate for people of different ethnic groups for generations in this country, and we pray for peace in that regard and love to reign. Hating entire political parties has become a sport. 
this is not a new conversation, but it's recently res found resurgence in, uh, in our narrative, is uh, expressions of hate for Israelis or Palestinians, or maybe both. And if you think you have figured that problem out, you probably haven't. It's really complicated and nuanced, right? And just to stand up and say, we support Israel no matter what they do. Well, you know, do you support you no matter what you do? Sometimes you make some mistakes, right? So you haven't been perfect throughout history. The biblical mandate, just for the record, is pray for peace in Israel, not agree with everything that they do, right? But just because we pray for peace in Israel doesn't mean that we should say, so kick out all the Palestinians and, like, let's just kill them all. You see how this is a really nuanced issue? Right. And I haven't even really told you what the actual issue is. But hate reigns in that conversation. I mean, so much so that just saying what I've already said now could get me back to that other thing I said a minute ago where I get hashtag canceled. Because somebody's, I don't know any of you, if you do, but somebody's going to have an opinion about my opinion about the thing that's going on. And then, in my opinion, most embarrassingly and worst of all, is our I want to say ability, but I'm tempted to almost say our love for a culture of Christians hating fellow Christians. Like, there are people who, who are Christians who, the fact that I'm a charismatic Pentecostal person and stood up and gave love to somebody in, in, a, in a different, more liturgical kind of uh, circle today during our ministry moment, there, there's some people who would be uncomfortable with that. That's sad. That's sad. I have a friend in Arizona who's doing a sermon series right now where he's walking through, he's calling it a, 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 a nation or a kingdom of tribes. And he's actually walking his church through the great things that you can learn from different Christian faith traditions, right? And he's, he's a Baptist, and he's like, I'm chomping at the bit and nervous to talk about you charismatics in a few weeks, right? <laughs> And he gave some love to the Catholics. <gasps> I know some of us are laughing and some of us are like, you can't do that. They're not Christians. Yeah, maybe you watch that documentary on Netflix or whatever that said that you can't be Catholic and be a Christian. You see how messed up we are? Like this is, our culture breeds us to hate one another. And then we meet a Jesus who reigns over all of that, and we call him king as long as the people agree with us. Right? See, we justify our hate by shouting about the problems that we see that our enemies have. Right? And, and we, we spread our hate, and now the, the new thing is to spread our hate in the form of social media rants. Right? I mean, how many times have you regretted clicking see more on a Facebook post? Right? Because it's like that long. It's like, I just, I can't, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see more, anymore. Our problem is that we've learned to veil our hate in what we call just sharing my opinion. 2020 really made us fluent in that language. I, I saw a post recently that said uh, that they were actually criticizing as a, as a person who is criticizing churches who sing about freedom while still asking people to wear masks. No, apparently you're not allowed to do those things. I'm just sharing my opinion. No, what you're sharing is hate. What you're sharing is who you've decided is your enemy. You're not allowed to do this. And if you do this, you're just wrong. You can't be considered a part of the body of Christ. Just for the record, it turns out even Life Church has been the recipient of hate. Yeah. It turns out no one is immune to receiving it. Sadly, the American church has been expert in this in dishing it out. And I don't know about you, but this stuff is exhausting. I mean, have you ever hated somebody? That takes work. It's like clenching a relationship muscle constantly. And Jesus says, you have somehow gotten yourself to justify that you could hate those that you have decided are your enemies. I've actually read, I read scientific studies this week that said it is unhealthy for you to hate people. 
Scientists have figured this out. And we're like, no, hold my communion. Hmm. Okay, are we ready? Are we ready? This is going to get hopeful at some point, but it's not. None of these have been easy, right? Okay, let's see what Jesus has to, let's see what he's talking about, and then we'll see what he has to say about our propensity to decide that we can hate our enemies. And, and as usual, Jesus is, is, like I've said before, he's referencing some pretty problematic teaching that is happening in the world. The original teaching of this idea is rooted in what the Jewish people would consider the heart of the law. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, in, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. By the time Jesus came around, the Jewish tradition had, become, had taken these two passages of Scripture, and it, be, it had become common knowledge that this was the heartbeat of the law, that everything hinged on these two ideas. And Jesus totally affirmed that, by the way, in Matthew 22, verse 40, when he said the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. We've done an entire sermon series on this, where ultimately we realize that what it means to be a Christian is to love God with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus teaches us. This is what the Old Testament teaches us. turns out God didn't change his mind. But it seems as if the Jewish teachers just added an assumption on to what God said and then just ran with it. I was trying to imagine what this scenario would have looked like. Like at some point, some kid sitting down with his rabbi would have said something like, Rabbi, uh, what, what do we do with our enemies? After all, Leviticus tells us to, to, to love our neighbors, but what about our enemies? And the rabbi, probably thinking it was going to sound super smart, was like, well, uh, the opposite of your neighbor is your enemy, and the opposite of love is hate. Therefore, you should hate your enemies. I don't know that it came down like that. I didn't receive some prophetic vision or anything from the Lord that that's exactly how it happened. But I could imagine that just wanting to, to reason it out, somebody came along and added to the word and said, the opposite must therefore be true. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, obviously then I should hate my enemies. And this is what Jesus is responding to because this had become a common understanding in the day. Now, you're probably asking, well, how do we make sure that we know who we're talking about? Who is my neighbor and who is my enemy, right? So, again, the Jewish tradition said that your neighbor was any other Jewish person, period. And then your enemy was Maybe a little bit more broad than this, you, you would describe a, an enemy as any non-Jew or a Gentile would be a person that would be considered an enemy. Any person who thinks, speaks, or works bad or evil against you, they're an enemy. And we would go, yeah, that's actually probably a pretty good definition of an enemy, right? A person who thinks, speaks, works uh, bad or evil against me is probably an enemy. But then also the inverse is true, that an enemy is also a person against whom you would feel, think, speak, or work bad or evil against them. So maybe we just boil that down to people you don't agree with and people you resist or people who resist you, right? These are the people that the Jewish understanding would say, they are my enemy. The, the Jewish definition or, or understanding of neighbor was actually very specific. In fact, I read one rabbi specifically said, love thy neighbor as thyself only if he is your neighbor. In other words, if they are virtuous, but not if he is wicked. As it is written, fear the Lord, uh, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And they were referencing Proverbs 8.13 in this teaching. There, were, there, there actually is the Jewish idea that says, if your neighbor is like you, meaning that they're inside the covenant of God and therefore righteous, then your mandate is to love them. If they're wicked, meaning any person outside of the covenant of God, then you don't have to love them. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we should hate them. Because the Bible teaches us we should hate what is evil. And the Jewish tradition personified evil. And instead of saying we hate what is evil, they said, I hate you because I've decided you're evil. And then they made you an enemy. So Jewish teachers said that anyone outside of God's covenant is your enemy and should therefore be hated. 
And the Greek word that Jesus uses here when he says hate in Matthew chapter 5 means to detest or to love less than. So the Jewish teachers were actually giving people permission to detest others who they determined were their enemy or to love them less than those that they determined were their neighbor. To, give, uh, to hate a person is to give yourself permission to love them less than you love someone other than them. And unfortunately, we define neighbors and enemies very much the same way in our modern Western Christian America. Right? The way we do it is, are you a Christian? If not, you're an enemy. And you're an enemy until I can convince you to become a Christian. The problem is, if I treat you like an enemy until I can convince you to become a Christian, I probably don't even want to be your friend, let alone, let alone join your team. Or meet the God who made you call me an enemy. It's quiet at Life Church today. So what did God actually tell us? God said, uh, first of all, let's, let's get this off the table. God never actually said, hate your enemies. He never said it. He never taught this. In fact, a full understanding of God's perspective on who your neighbor is would leave you without anyone left on earth to call an enemy. Jesus taught that your neighbor was every other human being. He taught this in Luke chapter 10 when he told a story uh, that we refer to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't take time to get into this now. We've preached about this here at Life Church before. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is basically somebody comes and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story, right? And the story is of a man walking down the road. He gets beat up. And then the guy that ends up being the hero in the story, Jesus' Jewish audience would have heard about this guy, the Samaritan, and went, no, that's the bad guy. It's as if the Nazi soldier came and helped. Or the ISIS member came and helped. Or the other political party member came and helped. And Jesus says, they're the hero. And the Jews go, no. That's not how this works. And Jesus goes, oh yes, absolutely it is. The person who sacrifices and shows love is your neighbor. And Jesus says uh, that we should live as if we have no enemies because your neighbors are not defined by your shared belief or your culture. Your neighbors are defined by your shared humanity. So the teaching of enemy hate meant that you would be free from resisting or working against those people. All that work you're putting in to resist those people. All that time you spend posting about those people. You get to get all that time back. You get all that energy back. Because you don't have to do the work anymore. If you live as if you have no more enemies, imagine the energy you get back. Okay, now can I make a confession to you? The first time I read this, I didn't understand all of it. Can I talk to you about the part that confused me a bit? All right, in verse 45, Jesus says something that the first time I read it, I was like, what? I don't get this. Verse 45, he says, for God, for he causes his son, I love, first of all, that he says his son. And this is, in this context, it's S-U-N, the son. Like we, you know, the one that's making, going to make you hot when you walk out of here later today. He says, for he causes his son. Whose son is it? It's his, not yours, right? So he gets to decide what he does with it. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I read this, I, I thought, God, why, why would you make it rain on the evil and on the good? I mean, wouldn't it be so much easier for us in sharing the gospel if it only ever rained on Christians? If the sun only ever would shine on the righteous people? Wouldn't it be so much easier if we're like, aren't you thirsty and cold? Come into the sun where every now and then it rains and your thirst will be quenched. Come into this dynamic life instead of living over there in the black and the white and the, and the terrible. 
And they would all go, yeah, we really want to live. We really want what you have. It's so obvious that you're different. And, and by the way, it should be so obvious that we're different, but not because of what God has done, but because of the way we live because of what God has done. Does that make sense? Here, here's the point that Jesus is making here, is that the reason God sends rain equally is because he loves equally. Watch what God is saying. He's saying, I will provide life for you on this planet to live because I love you, even if you choose to be my enemy. Jesus models what it looks like to love your enemies by giving freely from his resources to those who love him and are called his neighbors and his sons and daughters and also to those who curse him and would make themselves his enemy. In this way, God sets the tone for what it looks like to live as if you have no enemies. Are you starting to wonder if this is an impossible sermon to live out yet? The question that remains right now is, how do we actually respond to those that we call enemies? Right? How, how do we actually respond? Because we should live as if we have no enemies. But I love that Jesus doesn't come in and go, enemies? That's a cuss word. Never say that again. You don't have enemies? Everyone's your neighbor. He didn't actually break that down. By the way, on a certain point, it's because he, he actually thinks that we're smart enough to have figured this out. Right? He thinks you're smart enough to understand this. God believes in you, and he thinks you can do it. Right? So he's not, he's not wasting his time. He's getting right to the point. All right. One of those articles that I read this week was by a psychologist, a, a professional counselor named Dr. John Sclair, and he offered five steps to diffuse feelings of hate when you recognize them. So if we really want to get into how do we actually respond to this, what should we actually do when we have these enemies that Jesus says, hey, you have enemies, right? But don't hate them, love them. How do we actually respond? He offers five steps. Number one, stop. Okay, he says a little bit more. He says, stop and take a deep breath. Everybody just take a deep breath in all the way, like as deep as you can right now, and then let it out. Right? He says, repeat that process four or five times before you do anything else. Right? Then he says, number two, consciously challenge your irrational, hateful thoughts. Like, take that thought and challenge it. I hate this person. Just challenge that. Why do I hate this? Do I have to hate this person? What if I found out something more about their story? Would I still hate them? Number three, replace those hateful, irrational thoughts with calmer, rational thoughts, right? Like, ain't nobody got time for this. I've got better things to do with my life than hate a person, right? Or maybe I don't know all the facts. Step four, if your feelings are directed to another person, limit your contact with this person. I think that's not terrible advice. I don't know that it's the most Christian thing I've ever heard. With the caveat that if that person's abusing you, we've said this many times during this series, if that person's abusing you, right, faithfulness to the Lord does not mean friendliness with those people who are abusing you. And then number five, the fifth step that Dr. Sclair gives is employ a distraction strategy to refocus your mind. He says, like, for example, watch a movie, go for a walk or a run, read a book, you know, do some exercise, don't punch a wall. Uh, you know, for me, it's like playing a guitar, uh, things like that, something productive that would uh, help distract you. Now, I, I want to say, this is actually not bad advice. This is from, a, 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 as far as I know, a, a, on a secular resource. Uh, it is a, it's secular advice from a trained uh, doctor of psychology. It's not bad advice, but just for the record. Taking a deep breath and letting it out a few times is actually an ancient Christian practice. I don't know if he intentionally stole it, but there's an ancient Christian practice from the liturgical traditions called breath prayer. Man, I've been, ref I've been recommending this to my friends for like months now, right? It's just a simple practice, but, but I don't think that Dr. Sclair invented it. I, I don't know that he would claim that he invented this, but this is actually a, an ancient Christian practice called breath prayer. I, I'd really recommend you take a look at it and, and employ it into your prayer life. 
But I'd also say that replacing hateful thoughts with anything other than what God says about that person is going to be shallow and ineffective, right? So when he says replace those hateful thoughts with something more positive, your only option there is not convince yourself of something different, but just to agree with what God says about that person. So, so declare the word of God about them. Because you can't actually declare the word of God um, about a person and maintain your integrity while simultaneously choosing to believe something hateful about them. You can give up your integrity in the process. That's your choice. But those two things can't coexist. Jesus actually then invites us to go a step further than just these five kind of nice ideas. The thing that he says is he says, pray and love. Right? So let's talk about these two things for a moment. Jesus says to pray for them. Pray for those that persecute you. Pray that God would bless them. I think, I think we get into trouble when we go, oh, yeah, I'll pray for them. I got some Old Testament prayers I can pray. I remember some of those David prayers. Dear Lord, this is, the, like, this is the moment where you break out the word smite. You don't say smite in any other moment in your life, but you're like, smite them in Jesus' name, right? You go reading all of those Proverbs. It's like, yeah, the righteous will prevail, and the wicked will be utterly destroyed in Jesus' name. And feel like you're praying for them. So I, I want to challenge you not to buy into the lie that that actually is the goal of prayer for your life. The, the, moment is, the, the, the reality is that David was modeling for us confession in prayer. And it's okay for you to go, God, I'm going to be honest with you right now. I don't normally say this word, but what I want is for you to smite them. In fact, could you smiteth them? Just to add a little emphasis, put that in italics. And in like papyrus font, so it feels really ancient. And smiteth them. God, that's what I want. That's what David was doing in that moment. He was confessing to the Lord. But I would recommend if you find it hard to actually pray a positive prayer about these people, crack your Bible open, turn to Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, and simply replace the word you with their name. And pray something like, Lord, bless and protect Mark Rondo. I had to pick somebody that nobody doesn't like. <laughs> so you would pray, Lord, bless and protect them. Lord, smile on Mark and be gracious to Mark. Lord, show Mark your favor and give Mark your peace. Amen. And then... And then I've said this before, but if you ask the question, like I asked to one of my mentors one time, well, so how many times do I have to pray that prayer for my enemy until I get off the hook? And my mentor said, until you mean it. Right? So when it starts off like, Lord, bless and protect him. Right? You haven't meant it yet. And you will know the difference. Right? But it's impossible to pray this blessing in number six and simultaneously wish ill for a person. Yeah. Okay. So he says to pray for them. That's actually, it's not easy to do, but it's easy to, to talk about. The second one is he says to love them. Jesus tells us to go farther than just ignoring a person and certainly farther than retaliating against a person, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. We're not called to cut our enemies off. In fact, we're called to do the harder thing, to actively love our enemies. Jesus teaches us to work to destroy our enemies by turning them into our friends. And you can even build a case for this from the Old Testament wisdom scriptures. Like in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it says, hatred, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. I love this. The word offenses there literally means it implies you were offended. And it says love covers that. Right? So love covers the sin that was committed against you. It, it covers that. So to love an enemy is to refuse to use their sin against them to harm their reputation. That means all of a sudden all of the posting about those people is now sin for you because you're not loving them. 
Even when you think you've tricked God and you didn't put their name in it. He knows. Right? In the same proverb, Proverb 10, the same chapter in Proverb 10, 18, Solomon says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. I love the Bible. Like, God doesn't pull a punch. He just straight up call you a fool. Right? For doing what? Spreading slander. Or, did you hear what she did? Right? And you say the story of what they did to try to vindicate your feelings of hatred towards them. Because you tear them down to justify how much better you are in comparison to them. Because certainly if you're the one telling that story, that must mean you would never do such a thing. Right? That's an act of hatred. And it's sin. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Look, even if you're sitting there going, well, I don't... And I don't do the water cooler talk. I don't talk about these people. I just keep it bottled up inside. What did God say about you? Your lack of confession before the Lord of your hatred of another person has made you a liar. Because God says to you, what do we need to talk about today? And you go, nothing, God. I'm good. Everything's fine. Right? And, it, and God would look at you and say, you have lying lips. And perhaps my favorite advice comes from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He actually points to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter. And he says, this is how we should uh, wrestle with the way we react and respond to those that we uh, call our enemies. Now, let me read to you just verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. Not the entire chapter, just this little chunk here. And I want you to think about the person that you've pretended you haven't been thinking about during this sermon, okay? Starting in verse 4, Jesus, through Paul, would say to us about your enemy, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, meaning when they get something that you didn't get and you hate them, you envy that love does not envy. But also love is not boastful or arrogant, meaning that when you get something that they didn't and you know you wanted it, you don't brag. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking, meaning that when you're in their presence, You seek their good before your own. Love is not irritable. Come on, somebody, you just need to drink a cup of coffee sometime and remember how to love somebody, right? This is the one. This is the one. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. You know that? You know that moment? where somebody's name comes up and you go, let me, let me tell you, oh, do you know what they did? <laughs> Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Right? If your hatred causes you to lie on somebody, to exaggerate what they did because you just hate them that much. You just want to make them look that much more terrible. Love rejoices in the truth. Now, now here's verse 7. Love bears all things. All things. Again, let's clarify. We're not saying love stays in an abusive relationship. But love is not broken under the weight, right? Proximity and love are not always the same thing. Yeah. So love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love thinks about your person and says, everybody is redeemable. Even them, and even still today. 
It believes all things. Love hopes all things. It doesn't just say, yeah, maybe. I mean, God, I guess he's a big God. I'll, I'll believe that God could turn that around. But it even hopes all things. Hope Hope is a confident expectation that says, you know what, I, I hope, I have confident expectation that my God is bigger than that person's issues and our issues together. And it endures all things. Meaning that no matter what happens, you, you refuse to allow your love to turn into hate. Again, that doesn't mean that you go to coffee It doesn't mean you hang out. It doesn't mean you have to listen. It means you refuse to hate. And then finally, at the beginning of verse 8, Paul writes, love never ends. So so for the question of like, but how long do I have to endure this? Love never ends. Love never ends. Now, can I I move on from that? Uh, Because I I think these, these, these words are challenging. And, and I have to I have to tell you that it doesn't necessarily get easier from here. It, it is incredibly hopeful. The question that comes up is, okay, so you read 1 Corinthians 13. That's all good and well. But what about if I don't feel like it? Now, I know that after we've said everything, some of us might be sitting here going, well, my feelings don't matter. But for, for many of us, when it comes to a person we would call our enemy, we feel like our feelings really do matter. And I understand that. I empathize with you that, that that's where you're at in, re, in that relationship. Our, our modern idea of love has been so skewed to teach us that love is something we feel for a person. So that then when we, when we, when we say that our feelings have changed, you hear the expression like about broken marriages. They say, we fell out of love. Right? But Jesus tells us that we have to love people that we obviously don't feel positive feelings for. He says, love your enemies. And 1 Corinthians 13 is a good model of what that practically looks like. And so, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice that leads to actions. It's not based on how you feel about anybody. So, if you've ever ended a relationship because you, quote, fell out of love... Just be honest about what you really mean. What you mean is, I decided to stop being in this relationship with this person and showing them love. I chose. Now, maybe you chose for whatever reason. And if you have questions about that, go onto YouTube and listen to just a few weeks ago when Sharon and I talked about all of the things about where God talks about divorce. There's a whole sermon there. If you have questions, if you have more questions, come and talk to us about that. But let's be honest about what happens in broken relationships. Jesus commands us to love everyone regardless of your feelings. I remember the day when I was in youth group, and I said to Pastor Chad Budlung, who's our youth pastor at the time, and I was playing bass on the worship team, and I said, Pastor Chad, I think I need to take a break from the worship team because, you know, I'm just up there. I feel like I'm just going through the motions. I'm just not feeling like I'm worshiping God in that moment, and I just feel like our worship team, really like our youth deserve to have worship team members who are just going all out with their feelings for God and worship, right? And Chad, he looks at me, and he had this, like, classically deep voice, and he he just looked at me and goes, Tim, whoever told you it was about your feelings? And I just like felt like tiny and insanely big at the same time. Like, oh my gosh, you mean that no matter what I'm feeling, I can give worship to God? And oh my goodness, it's not about me? (laughs) I was liberated and put down into the appropriate place all at the same moment. Uh, Pastor David Guzik said, when we actually do good works toward those people who hate us and persecute us, we will find our heart changing towards them. So the reality is that choosing to love our enemies is actually a part of our healing process. Because it changes our hearts towards those people. The more we're able to love our enemies, the healthier that we reveal our hearts to actually be. And finally, Jesus makes a significant statement in all of this teaching that we could easily miss, but it's really important that we don't. Back up in verse 44 through 45, 
He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? That's the initial teaching. And then he says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Did you catch the way he ended that thought? The key is how he finished. Here's what he tells us to do. And then he says, and here's why this is important. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What's the implication? It said, if you don't do it, you're not one. Matt Hurd, who's the founder of a ministry called Thrive, said at a recent event called the Wilberforce Weekend, he was talking about uh, this idea, and he said, the only true measure of our lives and the progress we have made toward Christ-likeness is not how people think of you, but rather in how you think of them. And if the Bible is to be believed and applied, then it's possible to say that the measure in which you can love the one you love least is the measure that you actually love God. I want to be honest with you and say that when I heard this and when I shared that quote with my wife, both of us had a, an emotional reaction to that statement. See, for me, I began to picture people in my, in my mind that I have feelings that they hurt me, that I have stories right? That I haven't quite done the 1 Corinthians 13 holding no record of wrong work yet. People that have wounded me in all kinds of different ways. And I, I started thinking that, that, that if loving them is the gauge for how I determine whether or not I love God, what hope is there for me? I remembered that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 to those, about those who enter the kingdom of God, he said, about you, this is what I saw you do. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was wicked and you took care of me. Or I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then when the righteous people say uh, back to Jesus or back to God, they say, when did we do any of these things to you, God? God replies to them, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Choosing to love the people we want to love the least is received by God as an act of love for Him. It's as simple as that. To love our enemies is to love God. To hate our enemies is to reject God. Matthew 25 goes on, says to those who refused to love the least of these, he says, you have to get out of here. I can't allow you into this kingdom. Because th this kingdom is for those who have chosen to receive and freely give the love of Jesus. Now, the reality is that this is hard. I, I, I'm not trying to beat around that bush. These are hard words. I mean, let it sink in for a second. Jesus is saying, Enemy love is a requirement to be considered a child of God. And now think about your enemies. Really? I, ha I have to love them? Not just forget about them and move on from them? I have to love them in order to be considered a child of God? Now, let's not get it twisted. This is not a performative gospel. Right? This is not a you do this in order to get into the kingdom. This is a if you're a part of the kingdom, this is how you'll behave. So I can look at your behavior and know if this, the love of Jesus actually changed your life based on how you lived every other day after you received the love of Jesus. Right? This isn't an earn your salvation sermon. This is a because you're saved, this is how you live, right? Because my kids are obedient and, and they're submitted to their mommy and daddy, they obey the rules in their house. And if they don't obey the rules in their house, I don't kick them out of the house. I go, let's go back to the root and figure out the heart issue. You, you understand? But if, if you stand before the judgment seat of God and say, you know what, God, I made up my own rules. I know you said to love my enemies, but I decided that one could not possibly apply to me because you don't know what they did. Jesus said, but I died on the cross for that. And unfortunately, you didn't receive that I died on the cross for your hate. And that was your choice. I'm going to be honest. 
my feelings, my emotions make me want to go to God and barter with him. Right? God, if I do this, what do I get out of it? Right? What, what benefit to me is it if I love this person? Because you know what they keep doing? And I, look, I try to keep no record of wrong, but it turns out it's just like the same thing over and over again. It's just a record of one thing that keeps happening. And I forgive it every day, every time I forgive it, and it just keeps on happening. So God, what do I get in return if I love this person? And God says, if you got nothing, this is about obedience. This isn't about what you get out of it. And I'm not standing up here trying to preach a sermon to you that says loving your enemies is going to be easy or make you feel better. Because I can't promise you that. I, I don't know how your heart is going to respond to that person every time. I don't know how they're going to respond to your refusal to hate them. I can't guarantee you anything other than if you do this, you will be called a child of God. This is not about my feelings. This is about being obedient to the God who laid his life down for me when I didn't deserve it. When I was his enemy, he loved me. So I have no right to be called a child of God and to withhold love from anyone else. This is about being obedient. Which, by the way, is why Jesus ended his entire point here by saying, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same, right? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you going to do out of the ordinary if you do that? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Like, wicked people love their friends. Good for you. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus knows he's asking something hard. He's asking something more than common behavior. To just go beyond loving your friends only and to do the hard thing and love those that are hard to love. But if you want to live in God's kingdom the way he commands, you will need to learn to love your enemies to such an extent that you would live as if you had none. So I want to invite you as we wrap up to take a moment, if you haven't already done it, to think about the people that you feel like they're your enemies. I mean, think about them. Maybe there's an individual. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's an entire nation, religious organization tribe of people or someone in your family. I want to invite you to take a moment now to pray for them. We can do this one right here together. And maybe this will be the first time you've ever prayed a, a prayer of blessing over someone you would consider your enemy. But let's go back to number six. And I want to invite you to pray with me a blessing over them. Now, I'm not asking you to mean it. I'm not asking you to feel it. I'm asking you to obey the Lord. God, we come to you with all of our feelings. And we know that you empathize with them. And that you see them and you understand them even more than we do. And in the middle of the places where we don't even want to pray this prayer. For those of us who pray a prayer like this and there's something so visceral about our feelings that it makes us want to vomit to think we would pray a blessing, God, would you heal us and would you forgive us? For thinking that we could hold a standard higher than the one you held, which was that you loved everybody. So we pray this blessing over them. I'm going to use the word them in this prayer, and I want to invite you to your comfort level to pray out loud their name. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you're free to use the word them as well. But I want to challenge you to pray this prayer out loud with me. Would you say this to God? Lord, bless and protect them. Pray that to the Lord. Lord, bless and protect them. Lord, smile on them.
and be gracious to them. Lord, show them your favor and give them your peace. Amen. It's not a long prayer. If that was hard, let's just keep it short. But I want to invite you to do that repeatedly. And God, would you honor those prayers in Jesus' name. If you need uh, to pray for your own heart this week about this, if this was challenging for you, I want to invite you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, and make that a prayer for yourself. God, help me to love without limits like this. And there's going to be an area in there where you're going to feel stuck. And that's the Holy Spirit highlighting that for you and saying, that's the area. That's the one. Pray through that until you mean it. And then I want to challenge you as your pastor and as your friend to think about what would it tangibly look like for you to show that person or that group an act of love this week. And if it's at all possible, I want to challenge you to take a physical action this week. What I mean is to plan to do it and then to actually do it. For some of us, that's a phone call or a text message or a card sent in the mail or I mean, you can probably begin to see where I'm going with that. Some kind of practical. Now, again, I am not asking you to put yourself in an unsafe situation. If that person is unsafe for you, stick with praying blessings over them and keep your distance and be blessed as you do that. But ask Jesus, God, is there anything I could tangibly do to show love to this person today? And by the way, if that's as much of a, I won't post that thing online, Allow that to be an act of love, to delete. I mean, if you need to write it out so you can vent your feelings a little bit, give yourself 30 seconds and feel, and then delete it. Let that be an act of love. Be safe, but be loving this week. God, I thank you for this church. What an incredible church to get to stand up and preach such difficult words and to see such incredibly meaningful, heartfelt God-honoring responses to this series. I honor these people, Lord. I lift them before you, and I honor them. Thank you for this church. God, I bless them in the name of Jesus. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor, and may he give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.